Alexander, written and read by Oliver Gray, Chapter 1. Ben had walked the route a thousand times, through the council estate, past the church, and along the parade of shops. Every suburb had a parade like this, but because this was middle-class Winchester, it didn't contain any charity shops or betting shops, and only one window was boarded up. This, sandwiched between the incongruous fireplace shop and the Indian restaurant, had been called the Great English Takeaway. Some mad entrepreneur had come up with a concept that Dragon's Den would have annihilated. It had offered delicacies such as roast beef, Yorkshire pudding and spotted dick, in takeaway form. Needless to say, it had only lasted weeks. The Maharaja's palace next door was lucky to be still in business. Over the previous six months, the local paper, the Hampshire Weekly News, had reported a damning inspection by health officers, poor kitchen hygiene, plus another by the border agency, employing illegal immigrants. Cleverly, the palace had rebranded itself simply as The Raj, Fine Subcontinental Dining, conducted an intensive campaign on Twitter and Facebook, and was once again the area's destination of choice for a nice curry on a Friday or a Saturday night after the pubs closed. Ben walked past the Raj, noting, as he did every morning, uh, that what had seemed so irresistible the night before now merely made him feel slightly nauseous. No wonder Indian restaurants don't open early to serve breakfast. Do you suppose, indeed, that Indians eat curry for breakfast? Having never been to India, Ben didn't know. He marched up to the automatic doors of the co-op, hoping that they would open rather than break his nose. There was no reason to think that they might not open, but that was how Ben was. You couldn't be sure that they would open any more than you could be sure of anything in life. Opposite the parade of shops was a sign of the times. A large waitrose had sprouted, threatening the previous quiet confidence of the street. Attached was a Costa coffee shop, adding to the corporate blandness. The big topic of conversation in the weekly newsletter page in recent weeks had been the application by the discount supermarket Aldi to build a branch on the site of a derelict pub adjacent to Waitrose, which itself had recently replaced a petrol station. Classic country town Britain. While Waitrose, posh, had been welcomed by the locals, Aldi, cheap, had struck fear into residents' hearts. Why, it might even attract people from places like Basingstoke or, shudder, Eastleigh, in search of its appetite-satisfying delights, shipped in weekly in a container from Germany. It was Friday, and Friday was the day the Hampshire Weekly News came out. All Ben wanted was a newspaper, but the newsagent's shop had closed soon after the arrival of Waitrose. The co-op, whose days would probably also be numbered once Aldi was up and running, sold the weekly news. It was an anachronistically old-fashioned, yet undoubtedly successful newspaper. It financed itself by including a huge property supplement each week advertising impossibly expensive country mansions that presumably existed somewhere behind the Lelandii, although Ben had certainly never seen any of them in real life. Ben bought the broadsheet and nearly injured his head on a lamppost as he shuffled along the street, leafing through its pages. Would Derek White have delivered the goods? A decade previously, 
The weekly news had employed a team of over 20 reporters and photographers. Now all that was left was an editor, a deputy editor, two writers and a photographer. Their job was to fill 48 pages with news, reviews and entertainments guides, sports reports and anything else you'd expect from a local paper. It followed that they weren't experts on everything they wrote about and sometimes depended largely on press releases. Space restrictions meant that the original press release could become mildly garbled, but that was the least of Ben's worries. The big question was whether his concert would be mentioned at all. In four days' time, Ben would be presenting the first ever UK gig by Corey Zander, a roots musician from Texas, known only to a select audience of insiders who followed that particular genre of music. Ben had no money to advertise the show and had spent the last few weeks working out how to let people know about what was, after all, quite an unusual occurrence for a provincial town in the UK. It was his first attempt at being an impresario. Having often travelled to London, Oxford, Bristol and Brighton, following the music he loved, he'd been asked by the tour manager of a New York ex-punk band who'd been playing in Reading whether he knew of any venues suitable for Corey Zander. He didn't. But then again, maybe he did. What about the station? The station was a cheerfully run-down pub and music venue near, guess what, the train station in Winchester. It certainly didn't normally play host to troubadours from Texas, but actually there was no reason why it shouldn't. The station's lineup mainly consisted of tribute bands, washed-up punks, death metal outfits, and its staple diet, so-called showcase gigs, featuring three or four local bands of youngsters who mistakenly thought they were the future of rock and roll. Economic reality dictated that these were the sorts of shows that worked well in such a venue. Guitar bands were in vogue. Reality TV shows had convinced parents to buy guitars for their offspring in the hope of possible instant fame. So the local colleges were bursting with four-piece bands, mainly rubbish ones. But for the station, it worked. Book four of these a night, hoped that they would each bring 20 of their mates, and there would be 80 youngsters buying drinks. Even if they were technically underage, the markup on Coke and lemonade was even better than that on beer. Only recently the station had featured in the weekly news when a bunch of underage kids had got an older sibling to purchase mass supplies of alcohol from the local Tesco, stashed them under a bench in the pub's beer garden, and proceeded to get completely wasted. The inevitable subsequent horseplay had turned into a full-scale brawl involving glass bottles and refuse from the outside dustbins being hurled around the car park. Ambulances arrived to carry away the wounded. The police made several arrests and the next morning council officials arrived at the station to reconsider its licence. They only relented when taking into account that the glass bottles and the alcohol within them had been bought from a supermarket and not from the pub, which couldn't have had control over the incident. When Ben had gone to the station to inquire about how you went about booking an artist into a venue, he'd been pleasantly surprised at the reception he received. The landlord, Andy, who would probably have preferred his establishment to a nice, quiet eatery, but had been seduced by the siren sounds of the music of his youth and some ringing tills, passed Ben on to his assistant, Sam, who was in charge of the bookings. After initially looking doubtful, Sam brightened up when Ben explained that the demographic for Corey Zander was likely to be mainly middle-aged men who would doubtless be charmed by the pub's array 
of real ales and partake enthusiastically. That's what a pub likes to hear, and soon Ben had discovered that there was no mystery in putting on a show. You simply booked the venue, booked the artist, advertised the show, and kept your fingers crossed. Ben had assumed that there'd be some financial outlay involved, but it wasn't too onerous. It was a hundred quid for the room, and sixty to pay the sound engineer. Corey Zander's agent, Glenn Wallace, had asked for a guarantee of five hundred pounds plus accommodation. Corey had been banned from driving in Texas for an alcohol infringement, he explained, and wouldn't be allowed to drive in the UK. Ben did some sums and worked out the following. If fifty people attended at ten pounds a head, he'd be making quite a loss. But if sixty people came, paying fifteen pounds each, he'd more than break even. It seemed a risk worth taking to bring a semi-legend to his hometown. Ben taught at a primary school in the Winchester suburbs, so, while not exactly rich, he wasn't broke. He decided to go for it, and asked Sam to pencil a couple of dates, pending agreeing one with the agent. This was Ben's first experience of dealing with an agent, and it turned out to be more complicated than he'd expected. For a start, Glenn Wallace seldom replied to emails, and hardly ever answered his mobile phone or returned messages. Then, when a date had finally been agreed, Ben realised for the first time, on talking to Wallace, that Corey Zander had been booked to play the night after in Basingstoke, and the night after that in Southampton. Only someone severely geographically challenged could have failed to realise that these three shows would all dilute each other's audiences, being within a few miles of each other. Really, said the agent, I didn't know. The results of this dereliction of duty were already plain to see. Ben had printed out some tickets, which he was quite proud of designing himself on his laptop, but initially there had been no one to sell them to. Winchester had no ticket outlets such as a city like Brighton had. Record shops used to be the places to sell tickets, but Winchester hadn't had an independent record shop since the Winchester Wax closed in Stockbridge Road a decade previously. The music shop which had taken its place refused to sell tickets or display posters on the grounds that they were busy enough as it was and had no window space. In town, there was a last remaining branch of HMV, a chain doomed to extinction by the rise of downloading and websites such as Amazon. Their response when Ben had inquired about them selling tickets had been one of quite humiliating scorn. It's not our policy, was all they would say. You could try calling head office. Ben's attempt to do just that had led him into a call centre chain so labyrinthine that he'd given up. He enjoyed the schadenfreude of hoping that, before long, the place would be closed down and the staff would be made redundant. Unfair, he knew, but he felt he wasn't being treated fairly himself. The station, however, did have its own method of selling tickets. An inability to choose between the baffling selection of online ticket agencies, all with their attendant booking fees, had led to their using three of them. Ticket Web, Ticket Script and C-Tickets. The Corey Zander show was duly put on sale at all of these, and Ben sat back in anticipation of advanced sales, if not flooding, and maybe at least trickling in. Sam taught him how to log in and check ticket sales. This led to a ritual which started as a daily activity, and eventually developed into a compulsive obsession which took place every hour or so. In the days leading up to the show, Ben discovered he could even check ticket sales on his phone, so took to having a look between every lesson. 
if he thought he could get away with it, he'd have looked during the lessons as well. But his head teacher would undoubtedly have spotted it and taken a dim view. A simple login led to a page which revealed how many tickets had been sold, displayed in the form of a colourful bar chart. That it was completely pointless to check so often was plain to see, especially as the chart remained resolutely immobile. But of course, there was just a chance that someone might have bought one in the last few minutes, so it was certainly worth a look. Clearly, it actually wasn't, but that didn't stop Ben from checking anyway. Four days to go, and not a single ticket had been sold. What would the consequences of an empty room greeting Corey Zander's first ever UK show be? Well, there'd be financial fallout for sure, and Ben feared grief from his fiancée Rosie if she were to find out just how much he had lost. Although tolerant of Ben's love for Americana music, in return for which he tolerated her addiction to Coronation Street, Rosie was of the opinion that they should both be saving for their wedding and not wasting money on self-indulgent fripperies. But she didn't know how much Ben stood to lose, and she wouldn't know. Ben would make sure of that. As he leafed through the grandly named Arts section of the weekly news, Ben was painfully aware that this was his last chance. Like many rookie promoters in the past, he had thought that simply booking the room and the artist was enough, and hadn't budgeted for publicity. What he should have done, he realised, was taken out an ad in the local press. But when he'd inquired about advertising rates, he'd come over queasy. They were outrageous. The agent had assured him that the record company would definitely be placing ads in the live sections of Uncut, Q and Mojo. Plus, of course, Corey's new live album would be reviewed and featured in all of them. A visit to W.H. Smith in the High Street the week before had allowed him to peruse all three of these publications with bated breath. He didn't buy any of them, obviously, although he might have done for his scrapbook if there had been any hint of the promised mentions. Ben had also dutifully sent details of the show to the listings agency, which supplied the national papers with their information. But nothing had appeared in any lists. It was obvious that Corey Zander would be entering the country with more secrecy than a Soviet spy. No one would know he was there. Astonishingly, the record distribution company, which turned out for reasons unknown to be based in Belgium, had supplied Ben with twenty full-colour A3 posters, admittedly depicting a ten years younger Corey, complete with a short-lived Texan backing group from whom he long since split acrimoniously. This was certainly the way to tell people about the gig, but what exactly was Ben to do with them? He set off round town to find places to display the posters, starting at the local tourist information office. As this institution existed to promote events in the city, he was confident of a warm welcome. But the grumpy lady behind the counter could hardly contain her contempt of something which was clearly neither classical nor literary. I'm afraid we only have the facility to display A4 posters, so we can't help you. Oh, I'm sorry, what about that space over there? I'm afraid that space is reserved for the Theatre Royal. Ah, OK, I'll see if I can get an A4 version made. Thank you. Ben put on a display of cheerful gratefulness for even being given the time of day. But as he negotiated another threatening set of sliding doors on exiting, what he actually muttered to himself was, Thank you for nothing, you old bat. Next, he went to the council office next door. All over the city were notice boards advertising all manner of fates, amateur dramatics, coffee mornings and the like. 
Ben wondered how to get access to these firmly locked glass-fronted cabinets, and had arranged to meet Mark Dibbon, the council's communications officer. I'm sorry, Mr. Dibbon explained, with a manner expressing a mixture of patronisation and intransigence. But the event you are describing appears to be a profit-making activity, and therefore doesn't meet the criteria for display on our community event sports. It certainly won't be a profit-making activity, Ben assured him. It's just something I'm doing to provide a bit of entertainment. Ah, so it's a charity event. Well, that's not how it was conceived, but if there's any profit, I'd be happy to donate the money to Amnesty or Greenpeace. Mr. Dibbon nearly choked. I'm afraid it would have to be a local charity. It looks like my only remaining option is to do a bit of fly-posting, responded Ben. There are a few building sites around town. I'm afraid if you did that, you would risk prosecution. Mr. Dibbon was almost glowing with the aura of a self-satisfied Jobsworth. Odd how everyone Ben spoke to was afraid. They bloody well better soon be afraid, he thought, as he headed back onto the high street to seek out some shops, cafes or pubs willing to display his posters. He was rapidly coming to accept that he was more naive than he'd realised. Of course, the last thing the management of one pub wanted to do was to give publicity to a rival establishment. He didn't know the derivation of the expression short shrift, but he now knew its effect. You've got to be kidding, was the essence of every response. The shops in the high street were all chains, whose managers looked blank but made it clear that putting up posters for people was not company policy. Years ago, there had been a few independent businesses around the place, like tobacconists and sweet shops, with little notice boards in their windows, but Ben now realised they had all gone. Those useful A3 posters were going to have to decorate his wall at home because there sure as hell wasn't anywhere else to put them. There were two local taxpayer-subsidised art centres, whose clientele would have been the exact target audience and who doubtless held copious mailing lists, but they, of course, were unwilling to share them, citing data protection. They wouldn't put up any posters because the event was unofficial. Ben could have hired one of these venues, but unfortunately they were so expensive that he'd have lost even more money than it looked like he was about to lose anyway. Ben had been sent a few Corey Sander CDs for distribution to local radio stations. Unfortunately, there weren't any, at least any who were interested in obscure American has-beens. The BBC station Radio Solent was talk-based, while the names of the two commercial stations, Smooth and Wave, told you all you needed to know about them. Their musical spectrum stretched all the way from Simply Red to One Direction. That was why Derek White, the editor of the weekly news arts supplement, was so important, indeed crucial, and the reason for Ben to peruse the paper with such excitement. Derek had promised to do a feature on Corey Zander in this week's paper. In order to do this, he'd explained, he would need a comprehensive biography of the performer. All Ben knew was that he was a respected roots artist whose music he loved. So he asked Glenn Wallace, Corey's agent, if he could fill in the background. Glenn said he'd send Ben an email with an attachment within 48 hours. After a week, Ben reminded him, and he guaranteed the biography would be with him the next day. That had been a fortnight ago, so Ben had decided he'd need to research it himself. Corey Zander, unbelievably really, didn't appear to have a website, 
but there were plenty of references to him on the internet. His Wikipedia page was one of those minimal ones, liberally spattered with blue bits saying unverified. But it did reveal his year of birth, 1958, and his place of birth, Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Days of web trawling had enabled Ben to create a relatively comprehensive life history of Corey Zander, and he'd found an out-of-date but nevertheless high-resolution photo. He sent the lot to Derek White, who had explained that his specialities were opera and ballet, so would need guidance. Ben was hoping for at least half of the music page, hopefully simply printing what he'd sent in. But this morning, his last hope was to bring bitter disappointment. A local schoolgirl called Melinda Miles had reached round two of the X Factor, and the page consisted of an inappropriately revealing photo of her, together with some quotes from her proud mother. At the bottom of the page there was room for two small extra paragraphs. One plugged the forthcoming appearance of a Guns N' Roses tribute band at a local social club. The other one was the big plug for the Corey Zander show. This is what it said. Canadian blues star Kerry Sander will be playing at Winchester's station venue on Friday, October the 14th at 7.30pm. Tickets cost £5 and are available in advance from the venue. How could they possibly have messed this up so comprehensively? Corey was Corey, not Carey. He was Zander, not Sander. He was American, not Canadian. He wasn't really a star. He didn't play blues. The show was at 8pm, not 7.30. March the 14th was a Monday, not a Friday. Tickets were £15, not £5, and were available online or on the door only. That was going to irritate a few people turning up clutching a fibre. It was going to be a crap day at school anyway, trying to teach when so many other things were on his mind. Ben dumped the weekly news in the litter bin outside the chippy on the corner and set off down Stockbridge Road the rucksack full of unmarked exercise books weighing heavily on his already slumped shoulders. Xander and Oliver's other books are also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 Tonight production.